Hello and welcome to the Sideways Life podcast. Um, This is day 20, no, day 20. (laughs) Um, And I'm on my own today because you're going to hear a lot more of Leanne in a second. Um, If you remember back to episode 100, uh, which was day, now what was 100? Day 14. It was a takeover from our other podcast, which is Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture. Uh, So that's the other podcast. We're a bit more professional on that one. Um, And so what we did was we basically played an episode from there on this podcast. So if you are interested in learning a bit more about Leanne, then this podcast episode is all about Leanne. There's an hour-long interview with her, which you're going to hear all about her, how she started, how she became a business psychologist, um, and what sort of work she does at the moment. Um, we've been asked about this a few times because we haven't really introduced ourselves too much on this on this podcast. We're a lot more free with our opinions on this and then the professional one. Um, but we just thought uh, it would be quite nice and quite interesting to find out whether you, the listener, likes this kind of thing. So give us some feedback and let's get on to the podcast with Leanne. So the next voice you're going to hear is probably me introducing Leanne. You're in a situation where you're, you know you're stretched, but you're giving everything and you fail. Hello and welcome to another episode of Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture, the podcast which is aiming to simplify the complex science of people. My name's Alan, my business owner. My name's Leanne, I'm a business psychologist. And generally what we do on these episodes is we interview experts about a particular type or something to do with workplace culture, engagement or well-being. Now, well, we're doing something a little bit differently because if you remember from last week, Leanne interviewed me about my background and how I got to where I am today. And I'm going to do the same with Leanne. And the idea being that we we realise that we're now, what, maybe a dozen, half, dozen and a half episodes in and we've not really introduced ourselves. So, slight deviation from the norm, but we just want to sort of learn a little bit more about Leanne today, if that's okay, Leanne. Of course. So not only is she my business partner uh, with Oblong, which is the consultancy we've got together, uh, but she's also my life partner, as in my wife. Uh, We've married for about 10 years, uh, traveling for about the same amount of time um, and together for about 15. So it's going to be a bit of a weird one because there's a lot I know about Leanne. But then as we discovered from the last episode is that some questions, when you asked me, I said things that I don't think I'd ever told you before. Mm. And so it's potentially that's going to happen again today. So Although it might sound a little bit of a strange sort of format because I know Leanne so well, I've tried to design some questions to try and get really to the heart of who is Leanne, what what makes her tick, and probably why you should be working with it, in my opinion. But. <laughs> so Leanne, is there anything you want to ask before we crack on? No, I'm happy to be here. Brilliant. Okay, well, let's just start off with a little bit of introduction. So uh, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist and I help typically owner-led businesses uh, create teams that care as much about their business as they do. Um, My passion is creating environments in which people can thrive, where they're engaged, where they experience positive well-being. Um, Because we know scientifically uh, that engaged, fulfilled employees uh, translate to better business outcomes. I love it. I love it. And so just tell us what is a business psychologist? Hmm. A business psychologist is somebody who um, who works within the science of people, behavioural science, um, and applies those principles within an organisation. Why would an organisation need a business psychologist? People are complex beings and none of us operate in a vacuum. 
our own behaviours impact the behaviours of others and particularly in organisations that are service-led where your people are your product, having a business psychologist is really going to help you harness people's strengths but also create an environment in which people can thrive, particularly now that workplaces and the meaning of work to so many of us is shifting and um, understanding how people behave and how to nurture the desired behaviors in your business um, is going to have a direct impact on your bottom line it's going to have a direct impact on your profitability it's going to have a direct impact on the happiness of your customers and ultimately the success of your business so psychology is an important topic for any business that that wants to grow through its people. And that is all about creating an engaging culture, which for me has three basic principles, how to find great people, how to engage great people, and how to empower great people. And so what do you think it is that people misunderstand most about what you do? I think it's, it's got better. I know that um, in my early days when I said I was a psychologist, I'd get the replies of, oh, can you read my mind? Um, and after getting over the initial frustration, I'd usually come back with something like, yes, and you should be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> um, I think, and I think, yeah, what people probably misunderstand is that they probably think I'm here to come with interventions, things that you can action immediately within your business to make things better. And the reality is, and, and the lie of, of psychology and the science of people is that there are no kind of interventions with a 100% guaranteed stamp of succeeding it all depends on the current structure of your business the current climate of your business as to what's going to work so while there are popular interventions such as well-being programs such as mentoring programs coaching um, or even, you know, great management training. Even then, it's it's about understanding what that training looks like and how it's going to have the most impact in your business. A great manager in a health organisation is going to look very different to a great manager in a sales organisation. Um, so I think that's the main misconception is that I don't come with the answers. I come with lots of questions. And then when we get the answers to those questions, those insights, then I can design an intervention that's going to work. So a lot of my, my role really initially is about research and gathering insights. So why did you become a business psychologist? What's the story behind this? I can remember the exact moment that I decided I wanted to pursue psychology. Not necessarily business psychology, but psychology as a subject. Um... I was in high school and very sadly, one of my close friends lost her mum very suddenly to meningitis. And the school reacted in such a brilliant way. It was a small school. There was only like 25 of us in, in my year. Um, but the headmistress brought us all into her office and she'd engaged a clinical psychologist to come and talk to us about how we're feeling, um, what's a a normal feeling, normal reaction to have in in the face of such a shocking and traumatic event. Um, and I walked into that room as a scared 14-year-old, not knowing how to react, not knowing how to support my friend. And I walked out feeling, I guess in a simple word, better and empowered. I felt that I understood my feelings better. I felt that I was given some really positive coping strategies. And I feel that I was by understanding my own behavior and my own feelings, I was then able to 
show up and, and be there um, for the people that needed me to. And I think in that moment, I saw for myself the power of psychology in terms of helping us navigate our lives and the challenges that we experience. Um, so yeah, at that point, I was interested. I, I knew that that I wanted to pursue psychology and this when I was 14 or 15. Um, so yeah, from that point on, through to after I finished my my undergraduate degree, psychology was the only thing I had on my mind. You mentioned there a clinical psychologist came into your school. What's the difference between clinical psychology and business psychology? So psychology in general tends to fall into two categories, normal and abnormal psychology. Abnormal psychology dealing with um, more clinical disorders. Um, so a clinical psychologist will tend to look at... Um, a more kind of well that clinical level of of psychology so when things aren't quite working in the way that they should be working within ourselves um a business psychologist works more within the normal and very much in inverted commas realm of psychology um and it's all about kind of how people behave and interact within the workplace so it's a more of a i guess it's looking at more of an organizational level um whereas a clinical psychologist is more likely to look at things at an individual level but you didn't always want to be a psychologist, did you? <laughs> no. I think like most young people, I went through through various different different ideas. Um, but my dad was very um, influential in my choices academically and professionally. Um, so yeah, I went through being, wanting to be a doctor, wanted to be a journalist. Um, in my very younger years, I wanted to be an actress and singer. Um, but quite rightly, didn't have the level of talent needed for that. Um, but I think what united them all was a, a desire to want to help people, want to um, support people. Um, and I think, I guess, reassure people, um, just make, try and make the world a little bit of a better place. You said that you wanted to help, support and reassure people. Why do you think that that's so important to you? I think there are a few reasons. I think... You know, in, in terms of my, the environment I was brought up in, um, it was a Catholic environment and it was very much based on, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. Um, there are some very positive values in there in, in terms of, of you know, you, you give what you can to, to whoever needs it more than you do. So I think that definitely, it's definitely something that stems from that side of it. Um. And I don't know, I guess the psychologist in me would say there's probably some narcissistic drive as well that means that I want to, I want to make things better because that, that makes me feel better. Um, I don't think it comes from a place of, of let me tell you how it should be. Um, but I, I think there probably is an element of that, an element of wanting to, I guess, guide others to answers that perhaps they don't have or don't know how to get to. Um, I think there's such a... I grew up in a very privileged environment. And that's not to say that we were rich or, you know, we weren't. My dad was, you know, coming from a very working class background in, in Liverpool. Um, so I think there is a case of knowing what he'd been through and knowing that he had to do it all very independently then being in this privileged position where I had so much support um, in my education, in my aspirations to develop as a person, 
I guess there's a part of me that connected those two things that, you know, without opportunity, it's really hard to make things better for yourself. And sometimes we need people in our lives to facilitate those opportunities. And I guess I just thought that if I can play that type of role, then for whatever reason, I I thought that would be a fulfilling thing to do. And I always wanted a a vocation. I think, again, this came from my dad's influence. I always felt, I mean, I said before, I wanted to be a, a doctor or a journalist. Like I wanted a vocation. And um, that's just the way I was brought up. I think my dad was an engineer. My sister is a teacher. My other sister is an accountant. Um, so, yeah, I guess I don't, I don't really know exactly, apart from I had a feeling it would bring me some sense of fulfillment. On an intellectual level, I found psychology really fascinating. I found people really fascinating. Um, and yeah, I felt it was just a, a good point to start pursuing psychology. You mentioned your dad a lot. Um, do you think he's proud of what you do? Yeah. Why do you think that? He's told me. Yeah? Yeah, he's told me. And I, <laughs> my relationship with my dad was funny growing up because I was the youngest by quite a margin my dad had a very high-pressured job, which meant he was absent quite a lot. Um, but it's seen that work ethic definitely influence me. Um, and yeah, I always wanted to make my both my mum and dad proud. Because I think, again, they'd knowing where they'd come from, what they'd achieved, I didn't really have any excuse. Like, it was on me. And there was definitely the pressure I put on myself. There was certainly an expectation um, from my family in terms of what I was capable of. But it was definitely more of an internalised pressure. Um, so yeah, I always want to make my dad feel feel proud. So let's go back into your main work is with leaders and managers. So I want to start off and ask a bit of an elementary question, but I'm sure a lot of us normals don't know um, this. What would you say is the difference between a manager and a leader? Yeah, that is that is a very widely debated and discussed question. I think what's really interesting about the way the research is going is that actually the, there is becoming less of a distinction between leaders and managers in terms of, of the behaviours they need to adopt to be effective. I mean, traditionally, managers are quite transactional. Um, they're about making sure that plans were executed in the way that they needed to be to deliver the results, whereas leadership was about creating the plan and creating the vision. Um, but yeah, as the research goes on, we're understanding more and more that these leadership behaviours are something that the organisations benefit from having across levels, across roles. Um, so, yeah, I think that gap is reducing. Um, but ultimately, yeah, the simplest way, and I guess in a business way, the leaders would set the strategy and the managers would be more responsible for its execution. So when you worked for a subcontractor for the Department of Work and Pensions, um, Summer, I, I was with you at the time, you loved that work. Would you describe yourself as a leader at that point or a manager? Um, very much as a manager. And what do you think made you a good manager back then? I think in terms of my competence, I was managing the people who I'd done the job of previously. And whilst that is by no means a prerequisite and often often not a reason why managers should, or people should be promoted into a management position. I think having that insight, having been there and done it and done it well, gave me credibility as a new manager and as a young manager in that I understood, at least I understood the role. Um, and then I think beyond that, I very much drew on my 
psychology education. I knew theoretically what it took to create an environment in which people could be themselves, where they had a voice, where they could question things, where they could contribute ideas, where they had autonomy, where they were empowered, where they were supported, where they had the correct resources that they needed to, to have. They had role clarity. I knew theoretically what I had to do as a manager. Um, and I think I had a level of understanding that was well beyond my years in terms of my professional competence. Um, so then it was just a case of having an environment where I was encouraged and supported to turn this theory into practice. So what was your best day as a manager? My best moment, knowing that what we were doing was really something cool. And I'd orchestrated this situation was when, so I worked for a welfare to work company called Pinnacle People. And we, I ran a contract contract that supported people with multiple barriers back into work so physical health barriers mental health challenges social isolation education financial challenges um, parenting a whole host of different things and it's one of the most holistic programs that the company had ever had um, and I remember going to a meeting at our head office and our MD was talking about how it would be really great if we start to cross-pollinate our contracts and start to understand how we could help each other. Um, and she gave an example of a contract in the Midlands um, that was refurbishing bikes. So the contract was that people who were unemployed, who needed some kind of work experience, um, would go to this, this place where people had donated bicycles um, and they'd refurbish them and then they'd either keep them or give them away or, or whatever it is that they did and this program had been so successful um, that they got lots and lots of donations but they had a surplus of children's bikes and they couldn't do anything with the children's bike because their contract was all adults um, so they could only give these bikes to, to other adults they didn't have any outlet for the children um, and she's like you know there, there must be an opportunity here somewhere and I remember going back and talking to my team and saying like is this something our customers would be interested in because we were the family support program so typically vast majority of our customers would would have children um and yeah the team were really excited we're like yep that's definitely like it was coming up to christmas as well um so i was kind of like right well before we can kind of put this all together i need to understand from a kind of a business case perspective how many people we can give these bags to because it's going to cost money to get them up from the midlands to manchester to organize appointments for people to come in and collect them so lots of different logistical challenges but the team really bought into it did all the legwork I asked them to do contacted then the contract manager of um, the biking contract explained it he thought it was really cool so helped me loads with the the transport logistics and even down to the last minute like there was loads of snow and ice that year and with the were they gonna get there and all this um, and we had this amazing event and loads of customers came we gave away about 80 100 bikes kids bikes couple of days before Christmas um you know knowing that, that this was a really nice thing that we could have done for our customers and this was it was the last day before the Christmas holidays and um I sent the rest of the team home I was like we've had a great day it's about one o'clock I was like we're done we can do no better this this year we're done so everyone went home and I was working with the um center manager of where we were just to kind of find storage for the few bikes that we had left over um and a guy came in um, who I'd never met before but was a customer, um, stressing that had he missed it, he, the buses were delayed because there was snow in North Manchester and he tried and 
And um, and I was like, it's okay. And we ended up that he had two kids and he had bikes for. We just so happened to have bikes that are the right size. Um, and when he he took them, he just burst into tears. And this is a guy who's like late thirties, early forties, hard as nails, North Manchester. People, you know, people like that don't show their emotion easily. Um, and he just turned to me and said, it's the one time, the one year that I'm not going to let my kids down at Christmas. And that for me was just like, oh my God, like we're not just helping our customers, we're helping their families. We're, we have impact, we have social impact. And without having, as a manager, heard about this opportunity and, and tried to do something about it, rallied my team and, and other stakeholders in the business to do it, it wouldn't have happened. And yeah, that was my proudest day as a manager. Getting emotional. That was a good day. While I've got you emotional, then what do you, what would you say is your worst day as a manager? Well, that's easy. My worst day as a manager. So same job. Um, but at the beginning of this contract, it was from startup. I was a new manager. As I said before, I didn't really have any much experience. Um, and I was appointed to manage the Northwest. Got asked to take on uh, Yorkshire as well, another region, because they couldn't find anyone to fill the role. Uh, to fill the role. Um, I went at it and fell on my face. I did such a bad job. I was well beyond my level of experience and competence. Um, so I got demoted. Um, and I remember having this meeting with the MD and my director in Leeds um, that I was going to get demoted and I had a number of options. And I remember getting the train back, feeling very sorry for myself and getting off for the train station and falling over and somebody's sick. So oh. I was all at my back. Um, it was a real low point, a real low point. Um, so yeah, that was definitely my worst day as a manager. I felt like I'd let myself down. I felt like I'd let my team down. I let my director down. Um, yeah, I guess it's that worst nightmare, isn't it? Where you, you're in a situation where you're, you know, you're stretched, but you're giving everything and you fail. You have always talked about this person, John, who I think you alluded to in that story, which was the director. Um, now, I know that you talk about John very, very fondly. Tell us a bit about John. So John was my director. He was also the husband of the MD, which made for an interesting dynamic. Um, we didn't know each other. He was new to the business um, when I took on this role. And he'd, he'd, he'd supported me. Well, I think he knew that it was a bit beyond me. Um so when we came out this meeting, I was given three options. I could either go back to being a coach on the contract in Yorkshire I just come from. I could be a coach on the new contract in Manchester, or I could be a freelance tutor, so basically a trainer. Um, so no option of of management roles. Like management for me was over. Um, and I remember going back and talking to you, Al, and various colleagues, and kind of thinking, well. I'm not, I'm not, I can't go backwards. I can't go back to being a coach, whether it's in my, you know, my old job or on the new contract. So I'll be a trainer, something I've not done before. I know it's something I'm good at. Um, and at least it, I don't know. I just felt like it, it wasn't a full step backwards and felt a bit more like I'd protect my ego a little bit. Um, so yeah, I went back next day and I told um, John this um, with the MD. Um, and this wasn't the answer they expected. I think they expected me to go back to being a coach kind of held my ground with it um and in the end John was kind of like I hoped you'd go back to be a coach because I think in a few months time 
you'd be able to then step back into the manager role. And I was kind of like, well, okay, but if you don't think I can do it now, what difference is it going to make to have three more months of experience I've already got under my belt? Um, and at that point, he was just kind of like, I think you can do this. And I think with a smaller region, you can do this. So he really lobbied for me, campaigned for me to the MD, his wife as well, by the way, and he's directed the contract to give me this chance. And yeah, she reluctantly, very reluctantly gave me this three-month run-up to basically turn the contract around. Um, but from that point on, I guess my... I guess whereas I'd seen John as quite like a scary figure <laughs> in my life, um, he was then like a... I guess he did turn into a bit more of a mentor, a bit more of a coach. And I was kind of like, well, okay, well, if if you believe in me, then I can't, I can't let myself down twice, but I certainly can't let you down twice. Um, and that was where everything just shifted. I, I asked the questions I needed to, I asked for the support I needed to. I got my shit together in terms of doing my job well. Um, and yeah, in three months time, we turned the contract around and I was asked to stay on as manager. So you've got very fond memories of John, sadly no longer with us. Um, and I think that a lot of the things that you do these days are based around some of the fundamental things that you learned from John. So tell us what are some of the things that you learned from John that... Yeah, I did. I did learn a lot from John, but I think there was maybe three core things that really stuck with me. One is that you're not that important. <laughs> One person, manager or leader, is not that important to lead with humility, with empathy, um, with honesty, um, and that it's all about building trust. And I think one thing that I, I later learned about John, that he was hugely successful. He was a CBE, um, but I didn't know that. And he never told me that. Somebody else told me that. So I think it's that kind of, it doesn't really matter what you've achieved or what you've done before. It's all just about the moment. And, you know, people aren't going to trust you just because you've got a legacy of achievements. They're going to trust you of how you're operating and navigating in that that moment. Um, so yeah, that's what I learned. You're only you're only as good as your your current day as a manager, rather than what you've achieved before. Um, secondly, the importance of employee voice. One thing that John did that blew my mind. Bearing in mind, I've been with this company for three years already, um, and no senior manager had ever done this before. Um, but he said to me, you know, right at the beginning of every quarter, I want to sit down for half an hour with every single member of the team. And that was everyone, whether they were a senior coach, whether they were a brand new coach, whether they were an admin, whether they were a compliance team, whether they were actually on another team, but worked very closely with us. And so we're in our office two days a week. He wanted to sit down with them as well. And he spoke to every single person, how they were doing, what was working well, what perhaps wasn't working so well, areas for improvement. Um, and just created a very safe space for them to give feedback to a very senior leader who is also the husband of the MD. Like that's an intimidating situation to put an admin person in, um, you know, who's very new to the, the team and the business or very early in their career. Yet he facilitated those discussions that then meant that I had the feedback I needed to make the improvements that I needed to do to make an environment that was better and more supportive for the people in it. I think that just then created this sense of teamwork um, and collaboration and transparency and psychological safety that we've talked a lot about before. Um, so yeah, the importance of employee voice. And the third thing, hide the wires. And it's funny, I've been talking about this on 
another podcast today, but hide the wires. So you basically said that even if you've had the shittiest day, even if you are getting pushed and pulled and dragged down and pressure from all angles, whether that be in work, whether it be at home, whether you're going through personal things as well, hide the wires. Like don't bring that in with you. Your team don't need you to put on your stress and emotion onto them. That's not going to be helpful to them in any way. And your only job as a manager is to enable the performance of others. Um, so yeah, if, if shit's going down, hide the wires. So you're saying hide the wires is one of the mistakes that a lot of managers make or could potentially make. What are the mistakes do you see managers making? Um, I guess having, feeling that they need to have all the answers. Um, feeling that they need to come up with every solution. Um, not running those solutions past their people. Um, and that's a mistake that I made and one that I learned very quickly not to do again. Um, but yeah, I think that's that's a big one, thinking you have to have all the answers. Um, I think neglecting the people aspect of their job. Like my, it was made very clear to me that my job as a manager was not to manage the contract, make the contract work. My job was to make, to manage the people, help the people work. Um, and ultimately, because if we do that, we'll get more people into work, we'll have more impact on on their families and we'll break the cycle of, of multi-generation employability. I had such a clear vision and purpose and my only real concern at all times was to make sure I was doing everything I could to help my team fulfill that mission. Um, everything else, you know, is important and needs to be dealt with, but the majority of my time should be spent on enabling others. Taking the time to nurture those relationships is really important. So for example, empathy, <laughs> having empathy, recognizing when someone's having a hard time, um, giving feedback, constructive feedback, specific feedback. If people have done something well, why was it so good that they did it in that way? Um, if performance isn't so great, being brave enough to have those conversations early on so it doesn't escalate to a performance management situation um, and allowing people to question you, allowing people to challenge you. So I think one of the, the biggest breakthrough moments I had with one of my members of staff was when she was able to, to question my decisions. Um, she was on a sabbatical with her. She applied for a permanent role. Various other things had happened. And, and whilst this role was meant to recruit my third coach, um, because of, of somebody leaving, I was recruiting my second coach. And she just wasn't ready for that level of responsibility to be number two. She needed that more senior support around her to make sure that she would succeed. Um, and she questioned it. She was like, why? I've been here for three, four months. I've been working my ass off, showing up every day. Why was it not me? I said, because you were never meant to be my number two coach. You are meant to be my number three coach because I need to make sure that you will smash this. And you will smash this with the support of two more experienced senior coaches. So believe me, and I am the minute that we need a third coach and that moment is more than likely to come in the next six to eight weeks, you don't even have to interview your your coach number three. And that in itself was she was like, okay, well, I get it then. I get it. Whereas if I hadn't created that environment where she could question that decision and a very a big de decision to question as well, then she would have disengaged and she would have gone back to other department I would have lost an incredible coach 
um, yeah, he, people need to feel that they can they can question your decisions. And as long as you have the integrity behind that decision, then you can explain it. And it's not going to negatively impact their experience or their, or their engagement. It's going to, if anything, impact it positively. You mentioned there that someone challenged you. What are some of the beliefs that you hold dear that a lot of people disagree with? I think the concept of employee voice can be challenging for some people. And I know we talked about this quite a bit with with Stefan a couple of episodes ago. Um, I think there's a, there's a conception with employee voice that you have to do everything your team says or you have to act on every piece of feedback that you get. Um, and that's not the point. The point is creating an environment where people can speak up and making sure when they do that they feel heard because that one in 10 thing that that you hear about that you otherwise wouldn't have may be the one thing that saves your business or saves your biggest customer or saves somebody from leaving. Um, the other nine might just be a case of, of acknowledging it, thanking them for their, their point of view and explaining why right now that's not going to be possible. I think there's a view that we need to bend over backwards, that coaches need to be this this come by our moment of everyone's happy and everyone's fulfilled and everyone's, yeah, of course. But, you know, the the reality is the reason that that, that works is because there's mutual benefits for everybody. Um, having a, an engaging culture doesn't mean that, um, that you have to bend over backwards and do everything your employees say. It's creating an adult-to-adult environment, an adult-to-adult relationship. Um, so I think fundamentally... I'm not sure people necessarily disagree with the values I hold. I think they may misunderstand some of the intent behind those values. Um, But ultimately, I'm a business psychologist, emphasis on business. Um, My role only exists if businesses exist. And businesses only exist if they make money. You're saying that people don't necessarily agree with you. One of the things which is your, your trigger words is the word fluff. So how would you react if a listener said, all you're saying here is just psychological fluff. Um, one, why are you listening, friend? <laughs> I'm not sure this is the podcast for you. <laughs> no, it's, it's science, isn't it? It's Psychology is the science of people. It's the science of human behaviour. Um, and it's empirical as data. We conduct studies to understand how people behave and what impact those behaviours have on the commercial outcomes of a business. Um so yeah, it's, I, I don't know, maybe maybe there wasn't an element of fluff to, to some people and culture practitioners. Um, but I think if you genuinely want to create an environment in which people aren't burning out, in which people can sustain their role for a long period of time, that do feel fulfilled, um then why wouldn't you nurture that? Because it's going to have a positive impact on your business. It's science, it's data, it's, you know, that's that's what it is. And I think if it's fluff, my, my guesses would be that you are either accidentally doing these things and not realising you're doing it. So therefore these interventions, these types of interventions sound fluffy. Um, um, or you're on the brink of burnout and so are the rest of your team. Or I guess maybe you've worked with people before it hasn't been very effective but I think that's the point, you know, we work, Oblong, we work with people on interventions that we measure. We measure the impact six months later, we measure the impact 12 months after that. If there isn't a positive shift in the well-being of your employees and the performance of your business, then then yeah, it was fluff, that intervention failed. But 
It isn't fluff because there is an impact. You talk then about your work. So I'm curious, what would you say is your perfect work day? I am quite introverted. So I think my perfect work day would be a, a balance of of kind of work in my head. So doing kind of analysis and putting results together and, and, and talking to people as well, having that that balance. But I think my my favorite days in work are the days where I see people hit a breakthrough, whether that be people that I'm coaching and they suddenly get that, oh, they did that because I did this and they thought, oh, okay, yeah. Those kind of breakthrough moments when people suddenly all realize all of a sudden that, oh, my behavior does impact my employees and how they think and feel and behave. Um, I find that satisfying because ultimately I I want to be disposable. If I'm doing my jobs right, I'm a short, sharp intervention and then you don't need me again for six months, for 12 months. Um, you know, the whole point is building the capability of leaders. Um, and I think as well when, as we, you know, we say the podcast, you know, understanding the complex world of people and culture, it's not that complex, actually. It's fairly straightforward. Um but gathering the data and the insights that you need for it to then seem straightforward can be the tricky part. Um, and I think for me, when you see leaders that suddenly have this clarity in an area that before would cause them so many headaches and they just didn't know where to go, um, I guess seeing that relief, that reassurance, that drive kick back in that entrepreneurial drive to go okay now I know what we need to do I know the plan now we can make it better um I think just yeah taking somebody from where do I even begin to okay I've got a very clear plan of action that's a good day so who who's the dream client to work with I'm not sure I have one specific organization in mind I think I think it is, as I said, more about helping kind of those owner leaders just get get a handle on all this. Um, because once they do, it's it's easy, it's maintenance. Um but I think in terms of personally, it would be cool to work with a, a, a private welfare to work organization again, reconnect with that. I think it would feel like a full circle moment. So to work with somebody like, I don't know, C Tech or Groundworks or that type of thing. Um but ultimately I'm not there's no one I think that just makes it very much about me and I'm not sure that is ever really my drive I want to feel like I'm helping and like I'm having an impact but I know whether that impact is in an accountancy firm a digital creative agency or welfare to work organization that translates to happier more fulfilled people and that has a massive impact it's not just them about our work selves is it if I'm happy and fulfilled in my work I'm going to be happy and fulfilled at home um so yeah, I don't think there is a target client. I think with all clients and the only clients that I will ever work with are those that that get it or, or are open to it. So, you know, they're, they're, they're unlikely to call it fluff. Um, but even if they did, I think just being open-minded to this, this could change everything. So strap on your, you know, your, your big girl, your big boy pants. We, we've got this, but it's going to take commitment from you um, an open mind. Um, and a bit of hard work. So there seems to be a trend towards uh, this year, and I'm guessing it's going to it's going to continue next year towards having outsourced sort of C level chief people officers. Um, imagine that you were brought in as the chief people officer for Twitter. Let's say, <laughs> what, what would your first day look like? I mean, maybe not Twitter because 
Lord knows where you'd start with that. I think that's without beyond my realms of capability. I guess the the things that I, if we're talking like people, you know, with, with that kind of an organization, those types of challenges, maybe an organization with high turnover mm-hmm. um, or an organization that is struggling to to find great talent. I think my first day, what would John do? <laughs> that's where I start. And my first day is going to be sitting down with people having conversations and I think first of all understanding that you know at a board level is this a priority are we going to take seriously that our turnover problem is more than likely down to the fact we are not creating an environment that engages people we are pushing people to the point of burnout and we don't have the managers in place to support people in the way they need to be supported and I think if you if you don't have that that I guess, consensus at board level, then there's almost no point starting because without that that support from the most senior of levels, any intervention is going to struggle. So I think that would be my first, my first priority would be to make sure it is a, it's on the board agenda. Um, and yeah, have conversations, have conversations with managers, have conversations with people, um, gather the insights um, you know, as you know, one of my favorite psychologists is a guy called John Amici and he says the most powerful thing that you can do is understand exactly where you are right now. Um, and I think that's something that is so, it, it's not sexy, is it, for an organization to be like, do you know what we need to do? We need to do a survey. So we need to know exactly how your people feel right now. That's not sexy. People want to talk about employer brand and and all these well-being interventions that we can do and that's the sexy stuff but the reality is that stuff isn't going to work if it's not targeting the actual problems that you have in your business um so probably my first two months let alone first day is just going to be figuring out exactly how people are thinking and feeling within the business exactly what's working exactly what's not and then designing a, a roadmap to to get us back on track and that's when the sexy stuff comes in but first we need to we need to do the we need to do the work we need to gather the data so if you were going to write a book then what do you think you'd write the book about? I think I would write a book that brings together culture, engagement and well-being in a way that makes it accessible and makes it actionable. And I think, and this isn't, I, mean, I didn't even know these questions, this isn't even about kind of promoting what we do at Oblang or, or the RX7, which is our um, our culture engagement wellbeing tool but I think what's so cool about the tool that we've developed and why I would want to expand on it is that it takes away the noise you know there's so much to think about as a business leader and if you start to delve into people and culture there's so many different topics I mean we just look at the topics we've covered already on our podcast it can seem a bit overwhelming I'm sure um, and I think the great thing about just distilling it down talking about the you know the seven principles that you need to understand you need to monitor and you need to nurture uh, within your business to create a culture that people are going to be engaged and fulfilled and experience positive well-being and your business is going to grow let's just talk about these seven things and yeah there's going to be complexities within those seven things because it is the science of people and people are complicated and we all love Myers-Briggs because it puts us in a box, but it's bullshit. As we know, it doesn't work. These things are more complicated. Um, but if we can distill it down into just seven points, I think that's what I'd, I'd write about. And I think as well, there's this, I guess this, there's so much overlap between culture, engagement and well-being. 
Um, that even as a psychologist, sometimes I'm not entirely sure I get it because there's so much going on, so much evidence and conflicting theories. And But you know, it's distilling it down, getting the basics right. You know, it's it's not even like the the complicated things. It's like, do your people understand what their vision the vision is? Do they understand why they're turning up for work every day and what impact they are individually having? That is massively powerful. Every organization out there has a vision. How many of your employees could name that vision? How many of them would tell you exactly what the organization is trying to achieve and exactly what their role is within it? Start with that. Because that is one of the biggest things you can do in terms of of nurturing engagement and well-being. Um, So yeah, start with that. What's your reason? What's your role? Um, Yeah, I think it's just trying to simplify it. But yeah, rambling answer to a question. I'll probably write about about the RX7 and how if you do nothing else in the first 10 years of your business, that'll serve you just fine. What question have I not asked you that perhaps I should have done? I think what's interesting is we kind of alluded to last week is that we've had very different professional journeys. Mine's been, you know, very much around education and vocation. Yours has been much more around entrepreneurialism and building businesses. I think, yeah, there's different routes and there's different reasons and there's different ways things work. But I think that's what being around people that challenge you to think differently, that challenge you to look at the world in a slightly different way. They're the people that are going to enhance you as a person. They're the people that are going to help you grow and develop. And they're the people that we want in our businesses, you know? We want people that are going to challenge us. We want people that are going to push back, that are going to question our decisions. Because you know what? If we're doing everything we should be doing, we're going to have a valid answer to those questions, valid reasons behind that pushback. And if we don't, then thank the Lord you've brought this to my attention because this is a gap that that requires my attention. So I think, yeah, maybe not. And this isn't something that's easily done and definitely something that I've had to had to grow into and still am, um, particularly in terms of feedback. Um, but I think, you know, knowing that people, generally people are just trying to help. People rarely just, want to just you know mess with you to make your life worse you've mentioned your mentor john quite a lot and i know he's very you're very he's no longer with us and i know that you are massively impacted by what he taught you do you think he'd be proud of what you're doing today <laughs> that question needs a trigger warning huh? <laughs> um, yeah i think he'd find it a laugh i think he'd find it really funny because my journey with Pinnacle ended with, um, I should also just say, like, I did end up getting promoted to a position above the one I was demoted from. That's how good John was as a mentor. He was like, right, let's do this. Um, so, yeah, so my my time with Pinnacle ended on a high in terms of what we achieved, a low in terms of the contract was ending and I was subsequently made redundant. At that point, we'd been living in Spain for two years and I've been going back to the UK. John was such a progressive leader. Bear in mind, the man was in like his 60s at this point. Um, he would have found it a laugh. He remember him saying to me, he's like, maybe there's a time that you just, you know, have a portfolio career or, you know, start your own business or travel the world, live life, do the work you love. I think he'd find it a real giggle that we'd been to so many different places and lived in 
different parts of the world and do what we do now. Yeah, I'm sad that he's not here to see it. I'm sad that he's not here to guide me. Um, but yeah, I think he'd be proud. I think he'd be as proud of what we've achieved personally um, as much as what we've achieved professionally. Um, he was all about that. Work-life balance, family is important. It's not all about work. Um, so yeah, I think he would. I think he'd... We'd have a good chat over a couple of pints and, yeah, reminisce about the good old days, the bad old days um, and how far we'd come. I love it. Thank you, Leanne. That was fantastic. Um, Just such honest answers to that. And also, like, you know, teaching us um, and translating the complex ideas into simple stuff. And I think it's brilliant. So shall we leave it there, Lee? Yes, I'm going to go cry over a pillow. <laughs> well, I'm sorry I made you cry, but I'm 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 pleased that we had some we got some great stuff. Yeah, no, it's important to remember these people and to be continually inspired by them. Um, and whether you know, maybe they're just not we're not in contact with them anymore. But I think we learn so much from each other and other people. Um, and I think that as well, where it is, and I think we talk about this as well that. You know, the responsibilities on the shoulders of leaders is huge. It is massive. But part of being a great leader is acknowledging that because then you're going to take your job seriously. And it's those people that create the most awesome businesses to work with. So we're back next week with predictions for 2023 in the business of people. Yes. Um, and then we are going to be, we've got, we've recorded some fantastic episodes or interviews so far around burnout and around Britain's healthiest workplace awards, uh, which um, I believe have just been announced this last week, mm. I think. Yeah, they have some really great interviews coming up. Um, so yeah, and in January, we'll be talking a lot about well-being, a lot about burnout. Um, and yeah, a lot of individual and organisational support as well. So so yes, look forward to that. And as I said, we'll be back uh, with two episodes on our predictions for 2023. If you have a prediction, get in touch, drop us an email, drop us a message. We'd love to hear from you. Yep. So if you're not subscribed yet, then click subscribe and all of our future episodes will pop straight into your app. You can find all of the show notes at truthliesandwork.com. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us, there's a little box on that website where you can uh, you can basically pop in a question or anything you want and you will get in touch with one of us. Thanks for listening and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>